Matthew chapter 14. And um, last week we had a review of the story of the death of John the Baptist. And the, the, the account that we're going to go over today uh, follows directly from that. And I think in some ways, um, when, when you think about it like that, it adds some perspective. So backing up a bit, in verse 10 of chapter 14, it says, He sent and had John the beheaded in the prison, that is, King Herod. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. In verse 12, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, some Bibles, like mine, put a break there and a title, Jesus Feeds the 5,000, that's what we're talking about today. But that's not the way it was written. The way it was written was the way I just read it. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. That makes sense, right? Jesus gets horrible news. Arguably, perhaps his closest friend outside of his immediate family, perhaps certainly a not just a friend, but um, a colleague in the ministry, so to speak. We, we've already learned of exceptionally special and intimate moments that Jesus and John spent together, and he hears devastating news. And what does he want to do? He wants to just get away. He's grieving from that. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. This happens, um, this happens sometimes in the public sphere. Um, sometimes uh, a public person, a celebrity perhaps, something bad will happen to their family, and usually they'll have a family representative who comes out in front of the cameras, and what do they say? Uh, and the family requests their privacy at this time. Right? You heard those words? Do you imagine that immediately everyone gives them privacy? No. Do you think that's going to stop the paparazzi camping outside their house looking for some picture to sell? Of course not. That's what they, that's what they do. That's who they are. They are there. They're not worried about what happened to you. They just want a piece of you. See if this sounds familiar. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, what's the it? The death of John the Baptist. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. They're literally in his face. So, they followed him on foot from the town. I don't know what happened to our maps, but all of this is happening in the area around the Sea of Galilee. 
So if you were looking at a map and you have the Sea of Galilee there, and if you looked at the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus basically cut across the top of it with his boat, but it was only about six miles across. So as the crowds could have seen where his boat traveled and they could have found him. So that's the geography there. Uh, also, if you compare some of the accounts, you'll see that um, um, Mark says that um, after the miracle that we're going to read about, he went to Bethsaida, but Luke actually says it happened in Bethsaida. That's not a conflict. There are actually two Bethsaidas. Um, uh, for a long time, I got really confused when they would talk about Elgin, South Carolina. Well, apparently there's an Elgin down by Columbia. Um, the only one I knew was where the barbecue comes from. <laughs> so uh, I didn't know there were two Elgins, but so it's kind of like that. Um, so they followed him. So when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, I think most of us would have seen the crowd and changed direction of the boat. <laughs> right? That's what I would have done, no doubt, if I was really trying to, to get away. But he saw the great crowd and immediately set aside his own grief. And it says, and he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Now, it's pretty amazing that here you have some entity, obviously, who we know as God, but when Matthew writes this, already so much is known about Jesus that, you know, he healed their sick was not the highlight of the story right? That was just, and he healed their sick, okay? But that wasn't the main thing he wanted to talk about, which I would have loved to have heard all the things that got healed that day, because we know it was a, is a big crowd. But he healed their sick, and then in verse 15, it says, now, when it was evening, so this had been going on. This had been going on for a while. Now it's evening. The sun's starting to set. The crowd's still there. The disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. This makes sense, right? Uh, there weren't convenience stores handy. Uh, there wasn't... Uh, what is it, DoorDash, or whatever all these food delivery services that we uh, have nowadays. Um, there wasn't, there, there just wasn't much around. Uh, he says, you know, kind of tell them to go away and, and have them go get some food. And um, Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So, does Jesus argue that there is a problem, right? The, the disciples have identified a problem. There are a lot of people here. It's getting late. Uh, they're going to need to get something to eat. Chances are it's 
miles journey back to their hometowns, um, we should probably wrap this up, Jesus. <laughs> uh, we see a problem. Our solution is, let's kind of wrap this up, dismiss them and send them on their way. Uh, tell them the show's over. You know, we're done here for today. Well, Jesus doesn't argue that there's a problem, but he suggests a different solution. <laughs> he says, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up. Why don't you feed them? So glad you mentioned that. Go handle it. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Now, presumably a lot happens before they say that, right? Estimates, as you guys are familiar with this story, um, it says 5,000, verse 21, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So 10,000, 15,000, perhaps 20,000 people, a lot of people. Um, how long did it take them to survey the crowd? I mean, how long would it take to, for me to ask, hey, um, you know, who's got a pencil I can borrow? Right? I mean, some of you might know you had a pencil. Some of you might have to ruffle in your purse. Some people say, who uses pencils? Um, but it would take a while to find out, hey, who's got something? You know, anybody? They had to interact with the crowd, apparently, to, to come up with the fact that we've got five loaves and two fish here. This is all we've got. So they've identified a problem. Jesus has agreed with them about that problem. Jesus has suggested that they fix that problem. And they come back and say, yeah, I don't think this is going to happen. We can't really do this. Because here's all we've got. So they're saying, here are our limitations to taking care of this. But what does he say? He says, bring them to me. Bring them to me. Um, and it says, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Uh, other accounts, and you guys probably also know that this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. Uh, other accounts, we can kind of compare and get additional detail. And in some of those accounts, it says that he asked them to sit down in, in specified groups, you know, organized groups. Verse 19, though, it says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Verse 20, it says, And they all ate and were satisfied. So the phrasing here, he took the loaves, he broke them, he broke the loaves. He gave them to the disciples. Does, what does that sound kind of like? What's that sound familiar? What's it sound like? It sounds like communion. It sounds like the Lord's Supper. Right? In Matthew 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. So, Sounds kind of familiar. And they all ate 
and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Again, in other accounts, Jesus says, now go collect it so that nothing's really wasted. So he picked up the 12 baskets. Uh, people have speculated the significance of these 12 baskets. Um, if you guys had some thoughts on that. One for each disciple. I think, I think that's makes sense to me, right? Uh, some people have said, well, it signifies uh, God uh, looking after the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, you know, the entirety of Israel. Um, some to compare that with a, an account we're going to read uh, before too long of the feeding of the 4,000. has a little bit different flair, a little bit different audience, a little bit different amount that's gathered up later. But, yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, so each disciple takes their basket and and goes around and collects. So each one has their own personal reminder of the overflow of that miracle, the excess that was there. It, the scraps were way more than they started with, right? Which, you know, I'm not sure they could do anything with those baskets you know hygiene being what it is today I'm not sure if we would do anything with that but um, they each could feel the weight of those baskets years later as they reflected on that and say you know it was a pretty heavy basket of stuff even afterwards way more than we started with one thing I I failed to mention that just really um, struck me that I had never heard or thought about this before but one commentator said it is to the disciples credit that they immediately obeyed Jesus and quickly found the lad who was prepared to surrender his lunch for the marvelous and gracious teacher who had so enthralled them that afternoon and he had been so interested that he had forgotten to eat his lunch remember it was night or getting late and here, the, apparently, the word is for basically a kid of 9 or 10. Now, can you picture a 9 or 10-year-old so interested in the rabbi that he forgets to eat? Which is a greater miracle? <laughs> I don't know. But I thought that was a really good point, that that was pretty miraculous that, that they not only found somebody with leftovers, but it, it was a, a young boy... Um, eight or ten years old that uh, had been so interested that he forgot to eat. I, I think that's, that was a pretty cool uh, observation. So we know this story. We know it pretty well. Um, so I was, um, I was looking for some ways to uh, kind of reflect on it from some, some, some different angles. Uh, Dr. Wearsby summarized things this way. He says, start with what you have. Andrew found a lad who had a small lunch, brought the lad to Jesus. Was he willing to give up his lunch? Yes, he was. Uh, God begins where we are and uses what we have. Um, we've seen this throughout, right? Um, what did David have? A slingshot and five small stones. Could God work with that? 
What Moses have? A staff and a sketchy reputation. Could he work with that? Yes. So, God starts with what we have. He says the second thing is you give what you have to Jesus. Step three, you obey what he commands. And then you'd be ready to gather up the bounty of what is left. I thought that was pretty good. Here's a question. Who is this miracle for? Why do you say it was for the disciples? Because they were going to have to carry on and, and, and do this sort of thing. Julie? The people could have taken care of themselves, but the disciples needed to see that that Jesus could take care of them through them. I guess. I think that's I think that's true. I, I think the the disciple uh, the miracle was was for the disciples. Now, it was also for the people in a way, but I think most people agree it was the main audience was probably the disciples. Um, Hanging out with Jesus had sensitized their hearts at least a little bit that they were even worried about the crowd, right? So they, they were at least thinking about the crowd. And I think that's probably true for us. The more we hang out with Jesus, the more our eyes become a little bit more like his, right? We're a little more likely to have compassion than if we're left to our own selfish devices. So... He had influenced them enough to inspire a good idea, but then he challenged them to do something even better and bigger than what they would have have imagined, and then he empowered the miracle. Um, One commentator says, the miracle demonstrated their need and subsequent pastors need to be dependent on Christ. They were unable to feed the congregation without his supply. The multiplication happened in his hands and their only function was to distribute what he had supplied. Contrast that to, you know, there were plenty of religious leaders in the area, right? I mean, Jesus wasn't encountering them. How many of them were actually leaders? Right? Um, who's a leader? Somebody with a following behind them. Right? Just because you're in a position of authority doesn't mean that you're a leader. I've, I've seen this. I've seen this. Um, a leader... calls you to something. And, uh, and you want to you wanna get on board with that. Uh... There was a message really to both people. Psalm 132 says, I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Supplying 
the needs of the people, specifically with bread, was something that God was known for, right? When did God supply bread? Manna, after leaving Egypt. Uh, There's a theme you'll pick up in Matthew, and we'll probably touch on it periodically, but the theme is, which would be, if you think about it, especially important if you're writing to a Jewish audience, the point Matthew makes interspersed throughout, and especially here today, is Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better redeemer. He's the better leader. He's going to take you more directly to the promised land, to a better promised land, and he's going to sustain you in the process. And yes, I can miraculously supply bread for you. Other prophets had done this too, right? Elijah and Elisha both had miracles involving uh, providing bread in a miraculous way. They would have remembered this, right? No doubt there were many prophets in the land, and I think it's reasonable to assume nobody else was cranking out a meal for 15 or 20,000 people in an afternoon. By the way, and I thought of Dad because he does these calculations all the time, Um, somebody estimated that it would have taken eight acres to spread all these people out in a reasonable fashion. And so that's a reasonable amount of space, right? And uh, to organize and to take all this. One of the um, one of the things that I've heard occasionally uh, at certain inflection points of a church's growth is, you know, it's it's just getting big. I I just don't I just don't feel like I know everybody anymore. Or we can't go to two services. Uh, I I just won't know everybody anymore. Do you think all 20,000 people knew each other that well? Do you think it mattered? But what did he do? He put them in chunks, right? They had small groups, right? Said here, here's 50 people, here's 50 people, here's 50 people. I can know those 50, right? So don't let... uh, Don't let crowds bother you if they didn't really bother Jesus. The other message that came out of this, if you'll turn over to the book of John, chapter 6 is where his account begins. And after this day wraps up, there's this miracle barely worth mentioning where Jesus walks on the water. But then in verse 22, it says, on the next day, okay, 
On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and they get confused, like where Jesus shows up and just gets there miraculously. And he launches in. They finally find him. And in verse 26, he says, Yeah, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You know? And you had to think it was probably pretty good bread. And he says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And he goes on to preach to them that he is the bread of life. So part of that whole miracle, although I agree with you, I think his immediate audience was the the disciples. Since they hung around, he said, by the way, you are wanting to get your needs met. You're wanting to, in fact, they even bring up Moses. So, well, you know, Moses kind of gave bread, and it was pretty much an everyday sort of thing, so here it is the next day. Where's our bread? I'm grossly paraphrasing here. Um, and he says, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. This is verse 32, but my father gives you the true bread of heaven, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. A similar message with water where he says, I'm the living water to the woman at the well. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So he is taking their physical needs and he's taking their interest in the sensational and their interest in the miracle and he's steering them like a good leader to the destination that they really need to be heading toward and he's also helping them to realize that their biggest need is not bread their biggest need is not bread their biggest need was the bread of life, right? If you haven't noticed, these are kind of crazy times right now in the world. Um, It seems that a lot of people want something. I don't think it's super clear what everybody wants. Um... Some people apparently really want TVs and tennis shoes. Some people don't want any rules. But everybody's wanting something, even if they're not sure what they want. Whatever they want, is that what they really need? No. I I apologize. Maybe I'll find it for for the podcast notes, but... Uh, back in the day when Merritt and I were uh, homeschooling, uh, the North Carolina had a, um, a pretty big uh, Christian homeschool uh, convention every year. There were three or 4,000 people there, and they would bring in speakers and so forth. And one of the speakers, I can't think, and, and perhaps it wasn't original with him, but it's where I first heard it, but he, said, he was talking about race in the world and I thought he made the best point Um, he said you know arguably there's just 
one race, the human race. But he said, really, if you want to break it down, I would say there's two races. He said, you're either in Christ or you're in Adam. We all start in Adam. That's where these people were. We want to be in Christ. As crazy as some people are acting right now, and as we're kind of shocked by it, should we really be shocked by it? Should you expect people who are not Christians to act like Christians? Not really. A fair point. Christians she says don't act like Christians sometimes too. Uh, I think that's true, and that shows. I mean, honestly, it shows in some of our history as Baptists haven't always been on the right side of things, where Christians haven't always acted like Christians. Um, the only solution, of course, is moving as many people from the race of Adam to the race of Christ. And as we look, perhaps, at the crowds on TV, as we might be tempted to be angry at them, if we could somehow come up with some compassion toward them, realizing that the majority are probably just lost, lost, lost and destined to hell without some sort of intervention they need our prayers and those that are especially close to those neighborhoods and populations really need our support um, as your connections bring you to those folks um, to be aware uh, I came across um, you know, I work for a very large public entity who, um, you know, has a vested interest in um, not offending anyone. And in the healthcare world, you want to take care of everyone. Um, and so we get emails about diversity and sensitivity and so forth. And, and, um, it's easy to say, oh, I don't need that. Um, but I came across a, um, uh, one of their, they collected these resources of, you know, kind of things to get you thinking sort of thing. And there was one that was um, written by uh, a gal affiliated with a theater in Atlanta. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if she was a playwright or uh, an actress, but um, uh, a woman of color who had a long list of things, um, like suggestions about how, you know, if basically if you're white, um, what you should do about it. And I've noticed a lot of people, uh, you know, tweeting this or Instagramming this and that. She said, you know, your social media stuff is fine. But 
what you really need to do is when you have the opportunity to speak up, that's really when you should speak up. And I've done this. I've had a few people in my office say very racist things to me and and I've told them, you know, if I hear that again from you, I can't be your doctor anymore. Now, I'm not sure if it was legal for me to say that. I'm not sure if I can fire a patient for the, that sort of thing, but anyway, they got my point. But I thought she had I didn't agree with all of her list. I'm not sure I would agree with all of anyone's list. Uh, but she had two things at the very end that I thought were worth repeating. She says, I need you to speak up when there is an everyday injustice. Because if you speak out then, then we don't get to the point where people are screaming in the streets for freedom they were born with. She said, I don't need you to speak up in a crisis. As a black person in America, I'm groomed to survive crisis, but I need you to speak up about the everyday drudgery that makes things more difficult than they have to be. I run into this at the office where things sometimes just don't work smoothly. You know, I call it friction. You know, it just, why is this taking so long? Why does this process have to happen? Why do I have to fill out this paperwork that I just signed yesterday? You know, it's just friction. It takes, it's just things aren't efficient. My hunch is there's probably a lot of friction that people of color deal with that I don't have to deal with. Um, so if I become aware of that, that's my opportunity to do something, right? I'm probably not gonna be on some video, you know, kneeling in front of a police officer. But if I see something in my office that I can say something about, I probably will. In fact, I have, but, but those are the times and the situations that, that we need to, to be aware. In terms of resources, I would also point you to, and I'll, I'll definitely put this in the blog notes, um, Pastor Derwin Gray from just up the road, Pastor Transformation Church, uh, who has part of his ministry uh, really developing a, uh, a church that looks like the world, you know, multicultural church, uh, multi-ethnic um, he just released a book uh, called The Good Life. It's on the Beatitudes, which, as you know, comes from Matthew. He has released his chapter called Blessed Are the Peacemakers Free. You can download Chapter 8, The Peacemakers, um, for free. He talks a little bit about race, which, you know, just so happened that the book he wrote many, many months ago happened to release right now. I think that was likely providential. Um, but he, he's, it's a good balance of, of, of writing to people who maybe are well-intentioned but just oblivious, which I might be in that category sometime. Um, but I'll put a, a link. You uh, just go to the book's website, um, give your email, you get a link, and download the book, and, um, or, or at least the, the, uh, the chapter, and I think he does a really nice job with that. Well, this has wandered uh, in places where I didn't necessarily expect, but that's okay. Uh, any comments? All right. Father, we thank you for um, the way that you not only had compassion on the crowds, but you have compassion on us. We pray that you continue to teach us like you did the disciples, that we can uh, stay close to you and maybe start to see the world a little bit more the way you see the world. 
and that as we get ideas about how to make that better, that we can give you what we've got and you can empower it and bring out a result that brings more people to receive the bread of life. Father, I thank you for the way that you brought this group of people who love each other and support each other and, and are working in so many ways uh, to do this very thing for you. We thank you for Jesus and uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us to make us more like him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.